welcome to Scary to Sleep. I'm your host, Shelby Scott, and I'm here to read you a very nasty little bedtime story. Here it is, folks, the finale. If you haven't listened to the first three parts of this gore fest, I have them listed in the show notes for your convenience. And once again, with these episodes, please read the show notes if you have any sort of anything you need to be warned about. Uh, I, I recommend it. Before we begin, let's clear up a few things. Andrew Parker is a fiction author. Andrew Parker bears no similarities or resemblance to the main character of this series. Obscene is not autobiographical. This series has not been some sort of elaborate revenge fantasy. Andrew Parker never has been nor ever would be involved in any kind of sleazy ultra-violence pornography like is portrayed in the Obscene series. Those are all very silly ideas that ought to be immediately dismissed, should they occur to you. Thank you. And now, here it is, the finale of Obscene. Weeks had passed, maybe months. I had no way of keeping track. The storage container I was being kept in had no windows, and there was no order to the schedule by which my captors came and removed me. About the only way I could tell time was passing was by the length of my hair and fingernails. I was taxied to and fro, but always brought back to that fetid steel box. I had tried about a thousand times to escape, but my captors kept the container locked tight. At some point in my hallucinogenic rantings, I must have broken the fluorescent shop light in the ceiling, and they didn't bother fixing it. My only source of light came when the large metal doors were opened. The darkness did not help my mental state. In fact, it elevated my visions. After a while, in the pitch black, the human mind begins to play tricks on you. It seeks patterns from the input it is given, and when it is given nothing, deprived of any sensory information, it'll create its own. Especially when you are loaded with long-lasting hallucinogenic and dissociative drugs. My subconscious ran wild with a blank canvas of my surroundings to paint upon. Jungle drums of madness beat an incessant tattoo on the walls of my skull. There were blurry snapshots of memory, most of them too horrendous to be recounted, but nothing concrete. I faded in and out of awareness in this state, as if the days-long delirium and hallucinations weren't bad enough. The hangovers of the drug they were giving me diabolical. I felt wrung out like an old rag. I was so dehydrated my blood was like sand. My heart struggled to pump the thick fluid and I could feel all my organs grinding within my body. My brain felt too big inside my head. It squirmed and pulsed like a caterpillar in its chrysalis 
like my cranium might split open at any moment and my mind would just fly away, transformed. I had been depersoned completely. My autonomy was totally stripped. I ate when they felt like feeding me. I drank when they felt like giving me water. I shit in a bucket in the corner like an animal. And I was forced to kill when they felt like using me. I didn't fight them. I wanted them to think I was subservient. But I was watching and waiting. They saw this quiet servitude as me being broken and becoming compliant. But really, their efforts of depersonalization had only served to make me more dangerous. I was feral. I had nothing left to lose, nothing left that made me human, nothing left that mattered to me. Nothing could stop me now. Death would be a blessing. Revenge would be extra. After God knows how long in there, the storage container smelled revolting. My clothes were disgusting, caked with vomit, blood, shit, and gore. My hair was hopelessly matted. I was a mess. I had been lying in the darkness nursing an evil Datura hangover, feeling my brain throb with every heartbeat when the container door opened with a hair-raising screech of creaky metal. The three henchmen who had abducted me stood backlit in that doorway. They were essentially my caretakers. Not that they took much care in the task. They brought me food and water and cleared out my shit bucket, though not often enough. I had begun to refer to them, at least mentally, as the Three Stooges. Larry, Curly, and Moe. Though they probably would have beat the shit out of me if I had said it out loud. The largest and obvious leader of the three was naturally Moe. The fat, bald, bumbly one was Curly, and the quiet one was Larry. The Stooges entered the container. Larry and Curly swiftly flanked me on each side and both grabbed an arm, turning their faces away as to not smell the wretched stench coming off of me. Moe flicked a switchblade and stared at me. For a moment, I thought they were here to finally put me down and out of my misery. But then, the stooge began to carelessly cut the clothes from my body, grimacing at the foul job and trying not to become contaminated by the coating of orger and grime. In his attempts, he caught my flesh a few times as well. Going to want some back team for that. That's an infection waiting to happen. Now that I was stripped, totally nude, the other two stooges continued to restrain me. I wondered what was coming next. Some new humiliation? I could only imagine. Mo exited the container and returned wheeling in a pressure washer. He sprayed down the floor and walls, cleaning the film of filth. 
then turned the pressure washer on me. The high power stream stung like a thousand needles jabbing at my flesh, excoriating my skin, but I did not scream. I didn't even thrash or fight them. I took it, stoically. Mo smirked and lingered at some of my more sensitive areas. Sadistic joy and his contempt for me writ plain on his face. When he was satisfied that I was clean enough, Curly and Larry held me down and shaved my head. The clippers snagged repeatedly and gouged at my scalp. More dehumanization. Another step towards total savage bestiality. I didn't mind it. Wet, sore, and bleeding, I was manhandled by Larry and Curly into the chair in the room. They held me down as Moe restrained me with thick, plastic zip ties. Once he was satisfied, I was properly tethered. He gave a hand wave to Larry and Curly, who made their exit. As they left, Atrax entered the room. He was obviously high on something. He sort of swaggered in and his eyes looked dreamy and unfocused. Leave us alone, he told Mo. Mo shot a weird look of contempt at both of us. Atrax didn't see and left around the corner. Now that we got you all cleaned up, he began to cross the room. Time to get the finer points. He circled me, eyeing me up and down from every angle. And then he sat down in my lap, straddling me. He stayed there face to face with me silently for a moment, staring into my eyes. He placed his hands on the side of my head and brought his face even closer. What? goes on in there. I wonder. He muttered. What was happening here? It was weirdly erotic. Did he want to fuck me? He wasn't really my type, but I obviously didn't have a choice in the matter if he did. I braced myself for whatever indignity was about to come. Still perched in my lap, he leaned back, reaching into his coat and removed a pearl-handled straight razor. The old Sweeney Todd-style ones you sharpen on a leather strap. He opened it and appraised it as it glinted in the light. I leaned back away from him as far as I could, but I could only go so far. Such a lovely tool, he said, holding the blade in my face. He stared into my eyes with dilated pupils full of evil intent and brought the razor down to my navel. Sharp, strong, simple, precise, made for one purpose, removal. He slowly and carefully slid the razor up my naked torso in a straight line to my neck, like a morgue attendant, performing their incision. He lingered with the edge flat on my throat for a moment, and brought the blade up 
smooth and gentle. He was shaving me. You are a lovely tool as well, he continued. His vacant eyes looked at me with admiration and affection. My heart was pounding. I heard and felt the razor cleave through every follicle of hair with crystal clarity. There's no frills to you. He spoke as he played the psychotic barber. I admire you. Your purity. Your passion. You are a beautiful creature. I kept waiting for the killing blow with every stroke. But it never came. Violent, passionate, confident with your actions. Your physical beauty is matched only by your capability for violence and creativity with it. He rambled. You are breathtaking. It is truly a pleasure to work with you. He lowered the straight razor, exhaled long and slow, and leaned into me, embracing me. When he released his hold, he evaluated his work. He again ran his hand down my now smooth cheek and lingered with a finger on my lower lip. <laughs> there he is. Absolute heartbreaker you are. Satisfied, he got up and exited the storage container. Mo re-entered, smoking a cigarette. He sprung a gravity knife and cut me free from the chair. He grabbed me up with frightening strength and heaved me naked, shivering, and bloody onto my soaked bed like a wet towel. Mo walked slowly to the doorway, smoking his cigarette and shuffling through his keys, preparing to shut the big metal door and lock me again in the gloom. How many? I slurred out. What? How many so far? He turned away from me, holding the cigarette to his mouth. After a long draw on it, he spoke. A dozen. You're a sick fuck, you know that? He was genuinely disgusted with me, like I was some sort of vermin. I mean, I seen some shit, but you... You're a special kind of fucked up. Makes sense why the boss likes you. He scoffed in a sort of disbelief. I can't wait till he gives the okay to skullcap you, you fucking freak. He tossed a bundle of clean clothes on the wet floor, flicked the lit cigarette butt at me, and slammed the door closed. I heard the bolt slide into its home, and darkness filled the space around me, leaving me 
in the void. He had turned his back to me. He didn't see me as a threat, just some tool they used, a prop. He was disgusted, but not afraid. They'd so thoroughly dehumanized me that they didn't even recognize my agency anymore. This was useful. It would make it easier to catch them off guard. They thought they had me living on my knees. But I was really on the balls of my feet, waiting to strike out. To pass the time and stave off more frightening hallucinations, I tried to give myself something to focus on. Kind of like a self-guided meditation. I had been on a Jeopardy kick. It put me in a place of good vibes because I'd always enjoyed watching along and trying to answer the trivia with my dad as a kid growing up. In the darkness, I imagined myself at a podium as a contestant, buzzer in hand, and the set materialized around me. Alex Trebek strutted on stage from around a corner, looking into the cameras. Hello, I'm Alex Trebek, and welcome back to Jeopardy. We're back with our contestant, Tommy Balasong. Tommy is a soon-to-be dead prisoner of a bloodthirsty black market organ trafficking ring. Isn't that right, Tommy? That's right, Alex. I answer excitedly. What are the categories, please? Alex asked, prompting the board to be revealed. He began to read them off. All right. Our categories are hodgepodge, potent plants, famous last words, before and after, and rhyme time. I'll take rhyme time for 500, Alex. This famous song by ACDC shares a title with the common nickname for the psychoactive plant you are currently hallucinating on. What is Hell's Bells, Alex? I answered, in the form of a question, of course. That is correct. Datura, also known as the Devil's Trumpet and Jimson Weed, shares a title with the 1980 hit considered one of ACDC's greatest songs. What's next? Alex asked me. How about famous last words for 2000, Alex? Interesting choice for your predicament. This 19th century writer's last words were, Lord help my poor soul. I considered for a moment and buzzed in. Who is Edgar Allan Poe, Alex? That is correct. Poe was found delirious in the gutter and spent his final days in the Washington College Hospital, suffering from visual hallucinations and delirium. Alex turned to face the cameras. All right. And now it's time for Final Jeopardy. Ready as I'll ever be. I replied eagerly. Since the 15th century, drops of this extract were used to induce pupil dilation. Seen as a sign of beauty at the time. But be careful, these drops could cause visual distortions, increased heart rate, and even blindness. I knew this one and immediately wagered everything I had as the final Jeopardy music played. And your answer? What is... Deadly Nightshade, Alex? Oh, I'm sorry. 
That is incorrect. The correct answer is Belladonna, part of the subfamily Solenoidae of the family Solanaceae. This group of psychoactive plants also includes Mandrake and Datura, all of which contain these psychotropic alkaloids, atropine and scopolamine. Something was wrong. Nightshade and Belladonna were the same thing. Surely the judges should give me that one. To this day, atropine is used by ophthalmologists to dilate pupils for assessments. Alex continued. And you wagered your soul. Another problem. I felt dread rising. That wasn't what I had written. I was losing control of the hallucinations. My guided meditation was turning into an unguided nightmare. His voice lowered its register, becoming sinister. Gonna have to collect on that now. Trebek's eyes rolled back into his head, and his nose bled a waterfall of black blood. His smile grew so wide that it tore across his face, and he morphed into the six-armed creature I'd seen in previous visions. This thing... This is what I was trying to avoid with my fantasies. A manifestation of my guilt and despair, it radiated raw malevolence. Its face contorted and transformed to those of my victims. Some I recognized from fragments of sickening memory. Others, I didn't recognize, but I felt guilt for. It would cycle through my friends and family, too. Ashton, my parents, people I'd robbed and screwed over on account of my addiction. Everyone I'd ever hurt. It loomed over me, mocking me, accusing me, and holding me accountable for every bad thing I'd ever done. It knew all my secrets, all my transgressions, and recounted them to me silently. Searing light pierced the darkness as the large metal door was opened and the accusatory phantasm evaporated. The set of Jeopardy flashed back to the walls of corrugated steel. Atrax, Dr. Vulture, and the Three Stooges entered the storage container. Hello, hello. How is our star? Asked Atrax. I blinked at him, the bright light scourging my eyes. Curly slipped around behind me, slid his arms beneath my armpits, and pulled me down so my knees were bent, holding me in kind of a half-Nelson with my head pulled back. That's how they preferred to drug me. Please, just kill me. I do not want this, I said, pretending to be resigned to my task. (laughs) You could have fooled me, Atrax remarked closing the distance between us and grinning. Maybe you can't remember the things you've been doing for me, but let's just say, you've been giving me the performance of a lifetime. I mean, you've been really freestyling here. My clients have been over the moon with this stuff. You need to stop fighting it and embrace it. I stared at him, tears rolling down my face. Don't act so innocent. You're just as enlightened as I am. 
I've watched you savage and cannibalize a helpless woman and use a child as a human dartboard. That was you. All that was inside you. I just helped coax it out, like any good director would. I've just been winding you up and pointing you in the right direction. You were made for this. I own you. Was what he was saying true? The guilt I felt sure was real. I couldn't rightly remember the despicable things I'd been made to do. But if the slivers of sickening memory that my delirious brain had managed to hold on to during the past months of hallucinatory violence were any indicator. He was probably telling the truth. Was I just as culpable for these atrocities as him? Atrax turned to Mo. Please, go prepare our latest participants. It's showtime. Atrax demanded excitedly. He was ready to cook. Mo nodded to Larry, and the two left. I've got something very special for you today. An entire family. I evaluated the situation, taking a mental inventory of my surroundings and the players within them. Atrax likely has his gun. Dr. Vulture is unarmed, old and weak. He does not pose a threat, and Curly is occupied with holding me. Usually the other two stooges were present for this part. I might not get a better chance at escape than now. You really should be more appreciative. You have no idea how difficult it can be to take a complete household at once. Fathers and mothers fight like hell and most will die before they let you take their children. So it is so very rare when we get an intact family unit. This should be a real treat. Christmas fucking morning. I'm thinking Russian roulette, family style. You ever seen the deer hunter? He asked as he siphoned the diabolical elixir into my sinus cavity. I felt it begin to immediately burn my sinuses and the back of my throat. Fuck you, you evil bastard! I hissed. Atrax cackled. <laughs> Fuck me! He asked. He leaned forward and slid a hand down my cheek, tenderly, like a lover. I tried to recoil, but Curly held me in place. My hair stood on end with rage and anticipation. He leaned in, bringing his face to mine, and looked into my eyes with that wistful look of ownership and admiration from before. He licked his lips lasciviously. For a horrible moment, I thought he might be about to try to kiss me. Oh no. You are the one who is fucked, my friend, he stated. His hand moved around to the back of my neck and gripped hard. He leaned in even closer and got right in my face, smiling wide, exactly like that pale aberration of my hallucinations. You are mine.
You are my property. I control whether you live or die. Not for much longer he wouldn't, I thought. I would be ending this fucked up tenure one way or another in the next few moments. I hated him. Wanted him to die. I wanted to die too for the horror to stop. There were two ways out, and both started now. It was now. Now or never. Or it would be this cycle forever. I snorted back the caustic extract and spat it into Atrax's eyes like a spitting cobra. Fuck! Fucking ungrateful bastard! He jumped back, bellowing in pain and rubbing his eyes. I knew how it burned in the back of my throat and sinuses. I could only imagine how it felt in his eyes. I jumped back against henchman Curly's hold and kicked at Atrax with both feet in the chest. He reeled backwards, still clawing at his eyes. I can't fucking see! Kill him! He shouted. I leaned forward and slammed my head backwards into the henchman's face, feeling his nose crunch against the back of my skull. Taken by surprise, his grip loosened enough for me to spin around. I put my hands on both sides of his face and plunged both my thumbs into his eye sockets. He shrieked as my long, ragged fingernails sliced through the conjunctiva and sclera of his eyeballs and the vitreous body. The eyes, jelly-like filling, splorched out and ran down his cheeks like the last tears he would ever cry. He turned to run and immediately toppled blindly over my shit bucket. I was lean and emaciated, but the drug was beginning to remove my brain's natural governor on my muscles and my veins were flowing with adrenaline. I was working with a primal strength. I closed in on Atrax. I hooked his ankle and shoved him sprawling to the ground. He reached into his suit jacket and pulled out his pistol. I kicked it out of his hand and it skipped across the floor. As he tried to get to his feet, I booted him in the solar plexus. He gasped for breath that would not come. That would keep him down for a minute. Dr. Vulture tried to push past me to retrieve the gun. I grabbed him by his lab coat and, using his forward motion, heaved him headfirst into the metal wall. He bounced off with a bong and crumpled to the floor. I turned back to Atrax and kicked him in the head, snapping it back and he was out cold. I crossed the room and grabbed the gun I'd kicked from Atrax's hand, feeling its heft for a moment. It was big and extremely heavy, one of those absurdly huge Desert Eagle 50 cals. Complete overkill, but it was big and flashy. Of course Atrax chose to carry one of these. I turned and there was Dr. Vulture, on his knees, looking up at me, hands together, pleading. Please, don't, he begged. I held the pistol in my hand by the barrel and smashed him directly on the point of his upturned chin with the handle. The skin was instantly lacerated and the jaw was visibly broken. 
I grabbed a handful of wispy white hair at the back of his head to hold him fast and clubbed him with the butt of the gun a few more times, cracking bone and splitting the flesh further until his mouth hung open, pouring blood, his fractured mandible bisected. The space below his upper jaw was a ruined hole. He looked like a snake in the middle of resetting its jaws after eating a meal or the predator with its mask off. The drugs were starting to really take a hold of me at this point. My heart hammered behind my ribs and my mind raced with ultra-violent fervor. Without thinking, I tucked the hand cannon into my waistband, put my damaged claw hand on his shoulder, bracing his body, and forced my other hand down into the broken mouth my fingers sliding down into the back of his throat. His teeth scraped the flesh of my hand, then my wrist. I made a fist and felt resistance as the surface area of my hand increased against the walls of his mouth and oropharynx. Then, a horrid tearing as the flesh gave way. He gagged and gurgled blood as it sputtered out of his torn cheeks. I drove my fist even further down, feeling the lining of his throat rupturing to make way for the intrusion. I wanted to reach all the way down and pull out his heart, like he had done to so many others. His throat bulged with the girth of my hand. I stretched my fingers out again pushing a few more inches down as far as I could and closed my fist again, working my way down the esophageal tract like an inchworm. I was about up to the elbow when I sensed my hand had torn through the wall of his esophagus and entered the thoracic cavity. I probed around for a moment, pushing through the pleural membrane and past his hot, wet lungs until I could feel the hard, lump of throbbing muscle. I wrapped my fingers around it and pulled back. As I tugged at it, it gave a fair bit of resistance, but I began to feel the supports give way and tear. It caught a bit at the cartilage of his Adam's apple, but one final yank, and it was wrenched free with a fuck of wet suction. There it was, still pumping his heart in my hand. I burst into maniacal laughter, realizing I had just reenacted a gag from Ace Ventura 2 in horrible medical realism. Still laughing, I turned to Atrax. He was just regaining consciousness and staring blindly in my direction, mouth agape in horror and disbelief. He may not be able to see, but I'm sure the sounds of my brutal execution told him everything he needed to know. As I staggered over to him, he began to wail. I pried his mouth open as far as possible and muffled his scream with a still beating heart, cramming it in as deep as I could. He was still breathing through his nose, so I pounded it flat with the butt of my fist. The arm was a piston 
fueled by rage, hammering at it over and over with my deformed hand until the space below his eyes was more or less flush with his upper lip. Blood bubbled and frothed from his mouth and nose. His eyes rolled back, and he collapsed. Mo entered, kind of dancing in, wearing headphones. They're ready, boss. Oh, fuck. His eyes bugged out at the scene as he turned the corner and saw the carnage. We drew on each other and fired simultaneously. The reports were deafening in the metal container. My shot was wild and ricocheted loudly off the steel wall, but his hit me in the shoulder, throwing me back. I barely felt it. I was so far removed from my body, but I knew I would feel it later. I rolled behind the blinded Curly, who was still stumbling around in sightless confusion, and used him as a human shield. I felt as his body caught multiple rounds and fired over his shoulder into Mo. This time, my shot did not miss. The 50 caliber round entered him just above the collarbone, vaporizing a chunk of his neck and nearly decapitating him. Bright red arterial blood sprayed in big gushes out of his throat like a geyser, and he flopped to the floor, squirting crimson as he bled out. With everyone in the room neutralized, I assessed the situation as best I could with the head full of drugs I'd been fed. It was fair to assume Dr. Vulture was definitely dead. He wasn't going to get far with his heart ripped out of his chest, and the blood around Atrax's face and ravaged nose had ceased to bubble, so I knew he wasn't drawing breath anymore. Neither of them would be getting up ever again. Curly was somehow still alive, perforated and bleeding, but still breathing. That was a problem. A Desert Eagle chambered in 50 Action Caliber Express only holds seven rounds, and I'd already fired three, so I didn't want to waste any more ammunition. I didn't know how much more I needed to escape. So, I did the next most logical thing that came into my drug-addled brain. I dragged the waste bucket over to Kurt and removed the lid. I grabbed him by his hair and pulled his face over the makeshift toilet. No, no, he protested, hacking and gagging at the feculent stench. He fought me, weakly, but his struggling was no match for the strength of my psychotic rage. Maybe you should have emptied that more often, fucker! I spat. Then, with both hands on the back of his head, I forced him down into the fermented sewage. The smell was horrible. I choked and puked into the bucket, filling it even more. He heaved, retching and fighting for air, and I pushed his whole head below the muck. He flung his arms about and pounded at the sides of the bucket, but it was futile, and soon the thrashing of his arms ceased, and he went limp, drowned in shit and vomit. What a way to go. Couldn't have happened to a nicer person. I brought myself to my feet. I felt dissociated, my head swimming in a hallucinogenic frenzy. 
The drugs were in full effect now, but I knew I still needed to get out of wherever the fuck I was and get to somewhere more civilized. I gripped the bloody pistol, pointed it ahead of myself, and limped out of the storage container. Finally free from my steel prison. Light. Natural light. It beamed onto my skin and felt like freedom. Warm and comforting like an old blanket. I was in some sort of industrial stockyard, loaded with shipping containers like the one I'd just escaped. I turned the corner and there was the final henchman, Larry, as I called him. He saw me, saw the blood all over me, and the insane rage in my eyes, saw Atrax's gun and put his hands up. He began backing away. Hey man, all good, I didn't see shit. I shot him in the head before he could finish. The comically large bullet obliterated his cranium, and he collapsed into a heap of useless flesh. I pressed on, pumping my legs. They screamed with lactic acid and cramps like a marathon runner on the last leg of a race, but I pressed on. I didn't know where I was going. I just knew if I ran long enough in one direction, eventually I'd have to hit something, and I wanted to be far away from this place. Far, far, far away. Finally, I hit woods, and past those, I could see a town. Houses, streets, just a little further, just a little longer. I kept telling myself, my eyes were so heavy. I stumbled and fell and just lie on the pine needle strewn ground. I rolled over onto my back and smiled to myself dreamily, looking up into the sparse green canopy and bright blue sky, feeling the sunbeam down on my face. It was over. I think so anyway. I wasn't really sure where I was or what I was going to do, but I had freedom and that's all that really mattered. I'm pretty sure at this point I'd taken care of everyone in a position to fuck with me. There may have been more offshoots like Animal, Zuzu, and the director had been, but I was pretty sure I just severed the head of the snake. I suppose I'd find out, but at least I knew. It couldn't possibly get any worse than it already had. And there was solace in that. Still here. Still alive. All the bad guys gone. Hard part. Over. I could figure it out from here. Once I could get to a phone, I'd anonymously call the cops and send them there. But before I did all that, maybe I'd just rest my eyes for a moment. Just a few seconds. I'd earned it. Epilogue I'm sure this comes as a huge surprise, but I didn't just live happily ever after. Things were pretty bad for a while after my escape. I ended up in the hospital again for the bullet wound and malnourishment. My body eventually healed from the damage I'd experienced, but my mind healed much slower. And there was scarring. I experienced visual distortions, kind of a static, sometimes 
a crawling out of the corner of my eye. My psychiatrist called it HPPD, Hallucination Persisting Perception Disorder, when she diagnosed me. I'd probably have it forever. A nice little reminder, along with all the scars and injuries I'd carry with me for the rest of my life. Also, post-traumatic stress disorder because, of course, that kind of goes without saying with the kind of trauma I'd endured. As part of the PTSD, I experienced vivid, regular night terrors and sleep paralysis. Waking up nightly, soaked in sweat, gasping for breath, laying completely immobile as that abominable swamp specter haunted me, recounting my sins to me endlessly. Reiterating the fact that I didn't deserve to be alive. Belaboring my complicity. My decisions had put me in that situation. How could I not accept that I'm at least somewhat to blame? I'd had a choice. I could have let them kill me or killed myself. Some nights, lying there as that pallid monster mocked me with its horrible torn smile and the faces of everyone I'd made to suffer. I'd wish I had. Some nights, I thought about finishing the job. Part of me knew deep down, it wasn't really my fault, that I'd been exploited. But something else inside me nagged and pointed the blame at myself. How much of the blood was on my hands? How much of it was my fault? Twelve lives. Plus Ashton. A baker's dozen that I'm responsible for. 21 if you include Machine, The Director, Zuzu, Atrax, Dr. Vulture, Larry, Curly, and Moe. But I couldn't find a shred of remorse for putting that lot down, so mentally I didn't even count them. My grief and guilt were toxic bedfellows that frequently shared a menage a trois with rage. I went off at nothing. That violent subconscious. Once you've been turned onto it, it's impossible to turn off. Impossible to control. The burning anger would just take over and I would lash out and it felt good. I was afraid and ashamed of how much I liked it. I felt removed from society, severed from my humanity. I was vacant, my emotions hollow. Being around normal people, I just couldn't relate. The distance between their realities and mine was just so dramatic, vast, and violent. I felt the fingers of madness tickling my mind from time to time, felt myself teetering on the verge of a nervous breakdown, but I endured. I resisted the urge to lose myself to the yawning void of psychosis. It would have been easy, maybe even comfortable, to hide under the warm, protective blanket of insanity. But I refused. My psychiatrist knew there was trauma, but obviously I couldn't rightly tell her exactly what. She recommended that I see a therapist to work through it. But what therapist in their right mind would be willing to take this mess on? 
could they even believe my insane story? It's so far beyond the pale, I don't think they could. Anyway, I'm pretty sure they'd be legally compelled to report my crimes to law enforcement. Doctor-patient confidentiality doesn't really apply when your patient is a mass murderer. I was also afraid of what therapy might dredge up, of unlocking the memories I had potentially suppressed. I knew I'd committed atrocities, but I didn't know exactly what. And I was pretty sure it was best that it stay that way. I thought to myself, maybe I could write about it or something. That might help me move forward. I enjoyed writing quite a bit in high school. I received a lot of compliments from my teachers for my creativity and aptitude with a pen. At least before the cycle of self-destruction and self-loathing began and dampened that creativity. It's been over a decade and a half. But maybe now... I can tap back into that. Maybe. I can finally find some peace from it. You know, one thing I've always struggled with is finding time to manage my finances. At the end of a busy week, the last thing I want to do is spend time budgeting all of my expenses or tracking down customer service teams to cancel old subscriptions I no longer use. Plus, I am not the best with numbers, but now I use Rocket Money and it does all that for me. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. With Rocket Money, I have full control over my subscriptions and a clear view of my expenses. I can see all of my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, Rocket Money can help me cancel it with a few taps. I love how the dashboard shows me this month's spending compared to last month, so I can clearly see my spending habits. Plus, they'll help me create a custom budget and keep my spending on track. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. And I know you do not have the time or mental bandwidth to deal with customer service, but don't worry, they'll deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of 5 hundred million dollars in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash scare you to sleep. That's rocketmoney.com slash scare you to sleep. Rocketmoney.com slash scare you to sleep. Thanks for listening. Thank you so much to my friend, Andrew Parker, for this incredible series. You've taken us on a ride for about seven months now, and it has been quite the journey. I know so many people fell off this series because, well, well, (laughs) some of it's pretty hard to get through. This one, I mean, he told me he was going to really go out with a bang, and how much more of a bang can you get than ripping a man's heart out through his throat 
or drowning a man in a shit bucket, whilst our protagonist vomits into that same shit bucket while he's being drowned. I mean, excellent, beautiful. It'll go down in history, right next to Poe and um, Lefanu, I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> All right, thank you, Andy. I'm sure he'll have some more for us in the future. He's not done writing, just done with this series. And thanks for coming along again for the ride. Uh, you can find the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, all at Scare You to Sleep. And let's see what else. Oh, um, Guided Nightmare coming out soon. I'm sorry that it has not come out yet. I uh, spoiled what it's, the theme is going to be in last week's episode, last week's ramble at the end. Um, I'm writing it. Don't worry. It's almost done, actually. I just really wanted to pay a lot of attention to this episode this week. And yeah, yeah. Uh, let's see what else. Oh, this is the part of the show where we're going to decompress and talk about our feelings. Not really. We don't really talk about our feelings around here. Well, a little bit, a little bit. But um, this is an episode that we definitely might need to decompress from. So if you'd like to stick around, feel free. If not, hop off and goodbye. Go take a shower because this episode probably made you feel filthy. <laughs> um, let's see. What did I bake this week? I made some banana bread. I think that's it. I think that's the only thing I baked this week was some banana bread. Um, again, I, I mentioned I've ever since I was in the hospital a few weeks ago, my sweet tooth is like weirdly, uh, lowered a lot. I don't know why I have, I have no idea why bodies are weird. Bodies are so strange. So yeah, I made some banana bread. I also made some beef bourguignon. I used Julia Child's recipe and it's fantastic. If you've never made beef bourguignon, it's actually incredibly easy. It sounds fancy and it tastes incredible and it takes a long time because you have to let it cook for a few hours, but it's actually a pretty simple dish and I highly, highly, highly recommend it for um, some sort of dinner this week or it's really fun one to like impress people with because it is so like decadent. I mean, you put almost an entire bottle of red wine in the sauce and it's, yeah, it's, it's very, uh, it's very impressive. So if you're ever having like a date night or even honestly, it feeds the, the recipe, you can make it, um, feed quite a few people. So if you're ever having a dinner party or something, it's kind of an old school, set it and forget it type recipe, you put it all in, you set it in the oven and then let it cook for like three hours. And I served it over mashed potatoes with some peas and the peas were great. I don't, you don't have to do peas if you don't like peas, but I recommend a a, uh, like uh, something with a little sweetness because it's such a rich, a very rich um, dish. And the peas, the sweetness of the peas really cut through some of that richness. And then the potato, mashed potatoes, of course, <laughs> what doesn't go good with mashed potatoes, really? So I think it'd also be excellent complemented by some like really good bread. I just didn't have it in me to bake a loaf of bread this week and I didn't have any good bread on hand. But I think it'd be great if you, you just pick up a baguette or a, friend, a loaf of French bread from your local supermarket or bakery. Um, you don't have to bake your own bread. I've just been on a kick of trying to bake uh, my own bread more often just because I enjoy it and it tastes so good. 
But yeah, uh, let's see what else. I don't have much to say tonight, you guys. I'm so sorry. Plus, this 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 episode was quite the ride. I actually started it last week, and I am ready for. Um, I have I, I made that Levain cookie recipe, the dupe, um, a few weeks ago. I think I mentioned it on the show because I wasn't that impressed with the recipe to be honest. But I did freeze a couple balls of dough, and even though it's not my favorite chocolate chip. It's one of my least favorite chocolate chip recipes I've ever made. Um, it's still a chocolate chip recipe. It's not, (laughs) it's not garbage. So I think what I'm going to do is leave you and I'm going to go cook one of those balls of dough in my oven and chill for the night. All right, everyone, I will see you next week. Next week starts our Halloween season. If you are um, participating in the kids episode, deadline is August 1st. That's only, I mean, sorry, August 1st, October 1st. That's in a couple days. So please hit that deadline. I don't want to leave anyone out, but I will have to if if your entry is late. I am so sorry, but I just have to keep to a schedule. And uh, yeah, keep, get your, get your kids episodes in. Um, new Araceli will be out this, this month at some point. Um, my other show Skin Crawl, uh, premieres this month and I'm very excited. Again, my first time directing and show running, um, doing all of that plus writing some, several episodes. I wrote three episodes and I got to listen to one of them. One of them has been done for a while. It's actually been done since like January. And so I've been very eager to release it, but one of them was done today or it's, 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 it's in, it's in its final stages. And so excited for you to hear them. I'm so excited. If you are not familiar with the artist Skinner and his work, please go check it out. He does the most incredible psychedelic horror comics, plus just all kinds of other shit and getting to adapt his work into a podcast has been, it's been a journey. It's been such a great like way to learn about things in general and storytelling and getting to work with so many incredible people and composers and editors, things that I don't get to do on my show since I'm, I am the whole show, you know, and it's, it's been a joy. I am so happy. I'm so excited for you all to hear it. I do know the release date, but I don't know if I can say it quite yet, but it will be mid-October. Look out for that. And yeah, so I'm going to go. All right, go get some sleep. Please drink your water and go get some sleep. Sweet dreams. Item number SCP-5186. SCP-7160. SCP-7533. Object class. Euclid. Keter. Safe. Special containment procedures. Spreading across the hemisphere and kicking up vast amounts of ash and dust. (laughs) The only thing I could hear was 7219 laughing. Do you remember your name? Heartland Counseling. Appointment update. I feel them again. Heartland Counseling. Appointment update. They're in my ears! Heartland Counseling. Appointment update. Nobody understands! SCP Archives is a weekly fiction podcast. Each episode, we dive into the strange, the unknown, and the... 
Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at scparchives.com.